Welcome to this week's Rashi Shir, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So we resume with Peruk Tet Pasuk Kaf. So Noah has come out of the Teva and all the promises and the Sheva Mitzvot and the rainbow have all been dealt and done and dusted. And now we actually resume the narrative of what did Noach do next. And the Pasuk says, Noach isha So the last bit says he planted a vineyard. And Rashi uses that to understand the word Vayachel. And he says, Rashi says on the word Vayachel, Asa atzmo chulim. He made himself chul, as in profane, as in non-holy. Now the word Yachel could be understood as Noach began, but Rashi holds not to give it its simple meaning, but to say it's Vayachel related to the root Chet Lamad Chul, profane, presumably because he doesn't feel that we need to be told that Noach started to do something. All we need to be told is Noach did it. So why Vayachel? Ah, it tells us something more than he started. It tells us something different. It tells us that he became Chol. Now, what does it mean he became Chol? Well, let's look at Rashi. Shahaya lo asok techila benatia acheret. He should have occupied himself, first of all, with another planting. And as we'll see in a minute, he had other things that he could have planted. And the message is, and I mentioned this last time, but I'll repeat it, is there's nothing inherently wrong with wine. We use wine uh, as part of our Avodot Hashem. We make Kiddush over wine, we bench over wine, we make Sheva Brachas over wine. Lots of times we use wine. Uh, one night a year, or two nights a year, we're commanded to drink four cups of the stuff. So there's nothing inherently wrong with wine. On the contrary, it can be used for Kedusha. However, if one's entire focus is on the wine, that is not good. That is not how you find Kedusha. If one's entire focus is on the gratification, the gashmiyot that comes from drinking wine, to the extent that that's the first thing that you plant when you rebuild the world, that is not what being u- wine being used as a, as a vehicle for Kedusha. And the opposite of Kedusha is chulin, is something which is not holy, which is profane. So Rashi learns from the fact that the very first thing that he did as I say, you've got the entire world to rebuild, and the very first thing that he did is get wine. That is chulin. Asa atzmo chulin. He made himself something. You can understand chulin is sort of neutral, not kodesh, but I think here it's a bit more negative than that. He made himself profane. Okay, that's the first part of Rashi. The next part of Rashi, ish ha'adama. Now, how would we translate ish ha'adama before we get into Rashi? Any suggestions? Anyone? Person of the ground. Person of the ground. Good attempt. What does that mean? Uh, someone who plants things. Someone who plants things. Although it's pretty obvious he's planting things because the Pasuk yes. says that he plants things. Rashi says, Adonai, Adoni Ha'adama, the master of the earth. He owns the earth, he's in charge. Now, I haven't got an answer, actually, why he has to say this, but Rashi understands that's what ish means. Ish ha'adama means the owner, the possessor of the earth. And then he says, it's in the same sense as we find, kamo ish na'ami. Ish na'ami. 
Now, this is going to get a little bit politically incorrect, um, but it's Torah, so we will learn it. Now, what does Ishna Ami mean? It refers to Rut, Perik Aleph, Pasuk Gimel, where uh, the first two Pasukim tell the first part of the story very, very quickly that um, Rut's husband, sorry, uh, Naomi's husband, um, who is called Elimelech, goes into Moab, he runs away in the time of a famine, and his children marry Moabite girls, and all these things are bad. And then, Vayamat Elimelech, Elimelech dies, Ishna Ami. And there it said, Ishna Ami. Vatishaer hi Ushnevanecha. And she and her two sons remained alive, but then the sons die as well. Um, now, what does Ishna Ami mean in that sense? What would you think Ishna Ami means in that sense? What's the man of Nami? Okay, so I thought you'd say that the, you'd assume it means the husband of Nami. But Rashi says otherwise. And he actually says, and that's why I've got the, uh, the, the Megillah Rut in front of me, um, although this is in brackets, so it doesn't appear in all versions. The reason it says that Elimelech was Ishna Ami is because he was Ishna Ami, Vesholet Aleha, and he ruled over her. Vahitafela Lo, and she was secondary to him. Lachain Pagaabo Midat Hadin Velo Ba. Therefore, the Midat Hadin, the attribute of justice, which resulted in a punishment for running away from Israel in the time of famine, struck him and not her. So Vayamat Elimelech Ishna Ami. Rashi is explaining why Elimelech died because he was the Ishna Ami. He was in charge of Nami. She was secondary to him. And that, says Rashi, is what Ish means in this context. Ish means owner. Now, by the way, why doesn't it just mean husband of Nami? And the answer is because the Jewish understanding of who marries whom is the husband marries the wife, not the wife marries the husband. That's why we talk about Ishet Ish. What does Ishet Ish mean? The woman of the, of the man. We don't talk about Ish Isha, the man of the woman. Because when there is a marriage, he, uh, she belongs to him, not that he belongs to her. Now, by the way, this does sound pretty uh, uh, uncomfortable to modern ears. I will make it a little bit better, just to remind you of the following. This isn't Rashi, this isn't this Pasuk, but it's a vote which I think is relevant to say at this moment. People sometimes accuse the Jewish marriage of being the husband buying the wife. And after all, um, there's a certain truth in that. As we've just seen, the husband is the master of the wife. Rashi uses it to say the, the owner of the wife. Ishnami is the owner of the wife. So therefore, Isha Adama is the owner of the ground. Um, by the way, Rashi says the same thing in this week's parasha. Uh, when Hashem is described as Ishmil Chama in the Shira Tayam, see Rashi there, he also refers to this very Pasukin root. Anyway, back to what I said. Um, so, number one, there's some truth in it, as we've just seen. Number two, the, the Pasuk says, Ki ish isha, when a man will take a woman, or possibly even buy a woman. And we, Chazal, learn out that there has to be a, an exchange. He has to give her something, something of value. Today we use a ring. And by she acquiring that item of value, in a sense, he is acquired to her. But here's the point that Rav Hirsch makes. How do we know in the Gemara that kicha means a transaction? 
And the Gemara says we have a Gezeira Shava, a comparison of the same word in a different context, where we know that Kicha means exchanging money for goods. Now, the Torah could have used, the, the Gemara could have found many, many different examples of where Kicha means to buy something. But which example did it find for the Gezeira Shava to work? Sedeafron. When Avraham buys Marat HaMachpelah. And there it's described as an act of Kicha, and Avraham has to give money. So we learn by the Gezeira Shava that when a man buys a wife, takes a wife, it means he gives money and then she becomes his wife. Why? Did Chazal, or why, why did the Gezer Shava compare buying Maratamach Pela to, as it were, buying a wife? Why didn't it choose any other type of uh, purchase? And says Rav Hirsch, let's look what's going on here. First of all, Abraham is buying something that's going to last forever. The most permanent thing you can ever buy is a grave, because you're never going to give it up, unlike any other piece of property. Number two, he's buying something in Eretz Israel which is the promised land, which is the land that has this intense emotional, spiritual connection to the Jewish people. And number three, why is he buying Marat HaMachpelah at that particular moment? To do the greatest possible honor to his wife. Says Rav Hirsch, that's the source of a Jewish marriage. Yes, there is a transaction, but look at the model, look at the paradigm for the transaction. Avraham buying Marat HaMachpelah in order to honor his wife forever, that's the basis of the transaction. Anyway, back to the Rashi. So, Ish Naami does not mean the man whom Naomi was married to because she doesn't marry him, he marries her. Therefore, what does it mean? It means master of her. Just by the way, just occurs to me, there's a certain irony because in the, the, uh, the book of Hosea, where Hashem's relationship to the Jewish people is sort of seen through the prism of the metaphor of Hosea's relationship with his wife, which was a bit difficult. And towards the end of the Sefer, you have the, um, the, the idea that in the future, we will not call Hashem Baal, but we'll call him Ish, not my master, but my husband. Now, I just raised this uh, in the interest of intellectual honesty because there's a problem with the way we're explaining Rashi if that Pasuk is to be understood in the way I just said it, because Ish and Baal mean exactly the same thing. Uh, and I know it's quite common in Israel for some women not to refer to their husbands as Baal, which means master, but refer to them as Ish. Well, I'm afraid, according to Rashi, they mean the same thing. Yes? Why would Rashi have to go out of his way to try and say, like, Ish means Baal? Because we want to know what the Pasuk means. But, but there's so many other cases, like, like, he takes it from one, he has one um, Pasuk, one Pasuk from Rud that says that. But there's so many other sukkim, like even our parsha says Ish Sadiq, and there's no mention whatsoever of. Oh, but that's the not. Being no, 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 but because Sadiq, so Sadiq is an adjective, it's not a noun. This, um, I'm sure, and I don't know the Torah too well, but. <laughs> okay. Many, many I, I don't know how often you'll find Ish in relation to a noun. Uh, it may well be, and I don't know the Torah uh, completely either, but your question will only stand if you give me an example, and we can see that Rashi doesn't say anything, even when you might think he needs to. But he certainly does say on Ish Milchama, Hashem Ish Milchama, in this week's parish, he says exactly the same thing. So I've got one example where he does. Okay, so you give me an example where he doesn't, and we'll talk about Okay, and finally, no, not quite finally, um, yes, finally on this Pasuk, Vayita Kerem, he planted a vineyard. Says Rashi, Kashenichnas Lateva, Hichnis Imo Zamurot Vayichure Te'enim. When he entered into the Teva, he brought with him 
branches and sprigs of figs. Now, why does Rashi say this and how does Rashi know? So um, it, Rashi knows, well, Rashi's source is the Midrash, but how does the Midrash know that Noah brought with him um, uh, branches of figs? So there are various approaches. One wants to say is he planted a vineyard. Now, apparently, I'm not much of a vintner. There's a fancy word for people who know all about wine. But apparently, if you, the vineyard is more than just the plant, the grapes. To make it a proper mummish vineyard, you have olives around the side as well. Sorry, not olives, uh, to aim him. Figs. You have figs around the side. That, that goes with a vineyard. And so when it says he planted a vineyard, it sounds like he had the whole kit and caboodle. Um, another approach is to say he didn't actually need to take in plants because plants survived the flood. How do we know plants survived the flood? Very good. Because the dove the, had an olive branch and so it knew that there was vegetation. Very good. Um, what? Yeah. So... Um, why, therefore, did he need to take anything into the table? So someone to say he took in those species which were particularly vulnerable and particularly fragile and were in danger of not surviving the flood. And what are those species? Vin- vines, vineyard, and figs, apparently. Another approach, which is the Mara, is to say that he took in all sorts of things. But the Torah just mentions these as an example. Now, why does Rashi have to say that he brought in figs as well as grapes? in order to back up Rashi's comment on the beginning of the Pasuk, where he said, His, Rashi is castigating Noah. He's calling him Chulin because he started with a vineyard and nothing else. So in order for that to be valid, he's got to be able to say that he could have planted something else. So that's why Rashi brings here to say that he also brought with him the species of figs and he could have started planting figs, but he started planting wine. So, what happens next? Kaf Aleph. Vayesht min hayayin, vayishkar. He drank from the wine, and he got drunk. Vayitgal betoch ahalo. Now, what does vayitgal mean? So, how would you uh, grammatically understand vayitgal? So, it could be, um, the future form with the von conversive of Tagal, Tof Gimel Lamed. There's a slight problem with that. There is no word Tof Gimel Lamed. So it must mean something else. And that's why Rashi says, Loshen v'yitpa'el. It's a hitpa'el form of the word gala. What does gala mean? With the hay dropped off? Revealed. So v'yitgal is a hitpa'el, which means he revealed himself. And that's what happened as a result of his drunkenness. So Rashi tells us what the word means. I, I'm going to put myself out on a limb here and say, this is one of the more simple Rashi's, that we wouldn't have known what the word meant unless Rashi told us the grammatical form, and it's the hitpa'el of gala, so it means he revealed himself. Betoch ahalo. Now, ahalo is spelt funny. It means his tent. Where's the, what's, it, what's funny? I mean, not funny, ha-ha, the hay. The hay. So without the vowels, it would be ohala, which means her tent. But he's the, it's definitely his tent. So Rashi focuses on the odd spelling. And he says something which I think is quite strange and is, is quite hard to understand. Ahala ketiv. 
It's written, Ahala. By the way, some versions of Rashi have got the two comments the other way around. The Ahala comes first, and the Yitgal comes second. I don't know if any of that applies to... Which one? Yes. Um, and Arzkrog talks about that. But the one I've got, which I think is pretty authoritative, has got the Yitgal first, which makes more sense because it's first in the Pasuk. So Ahala says Rashi, Ahala Ketiv. It's written with a hey. Remez ala seret hashvatim shenikru'u al shem shomron shenikret ahala. That's a reference to Yechezkel Kavgimol Dalad. So it's a reference, it's an allusion to the ten tribes. So, basic biblical history, Kingdom of Israel after the reign of Shlomo HaMelech is split, Yehuda in the south, two tribes, although really three because Shimon's there as well, um, Israel, Israel in the north, ten tribes. The ten tribes get exiled and swept away by Sancherev of Ashur, of Assyria, and they disappear. And maybe they'll come back, or maybe we'll just have enough of the sort of gene pool that were mixed into the tribes of Yehuda and Binyamin. When Mashiach comes, we'll find out. Um, but anyway, the ten lost tribes, the ten tribes were exiled. Says the Pasuk. They, so they're centered in Shomron, which was like a major area. So sometimes they're identified as Shomron. And in Yechezkel, Yechezkel, in that period, Kavkimon tells a Moshel, and it calls... Um, Yehuda Ahaliva, uh, I think, and it calls Shomron, i.e. the ten tribes, Ohala. And what happened to them? They were exiled. Why were they exiled? Continues Rashi. Shagalu al-Iske Yayin. They were exiled because of matters of wine. Shenema hashotim b'mizrake Yayin, who drank from bowls of wine. Now, they were exiled for other reasons as well, and Chazal give other reasons. But the Pasuk here that Rashi's quoting identifies their exile with wine. So that's the connection. Noah is in trouble because of wine, and um, uh, the ten tribes are in trouble because of wine. It still raises the question why this sort of random uh, incident from history should be attached to this other incident. What could be the connection between them, apart from the fact they both involve wine? So, two things to say. Number one, um, I saw an explanation. Why is the ten tribes who were bad called Ahala? Ahala means her tent. Her tent as opposed to his tent. I.e. he is not there. Who's he? Hashem. So they're called Ahala because they excluded Hashem from their world. They concentrated on their own affairs. Just like who? Noah. Just like Rashi said about Noah. What? Exactly. Because he was chol, because he occupied himself. But the first thing he planted, his focus was wine, was physical gratification, which is the opposite of Kedusha. That's why it's cholin. And it's excluding Hashem from his world. So the Ahala, referring to the ten tribes who were given that name, matches precisely what happened to what Noah was doing and, and fits very closely, or with a little bit of understanding, to Rashi's comment on Noah that he, was, he made himself chulin. Just like the ten tribes excluded Hashem from their world, that's why it's her tent, not his tent. Or you can say, and these are not mutually exclusive, that the ten tribes 
is the precursor of the exile of the other two tribes at the time of the Choron Abayat. It's really the first exile. Now, okay, there was an exile in Egypt, which is a little bit different. Um, it's not necessarily to be put in the same category as the subsequent exiles of the Jewish people once they were in Eretz Israel and then exiled therefrom. So you could argue that this, the exile of the ten tribes is not just like some random event. It's a very, very crucial event. It's the first time the Jewish people are exiled. And according to the Pasuk in Yechezkel, it's all because of wine. So we can relate that to if the first exile, which is because of wine, matches up with the first time humanity got it wrong because of wine. When is the first time humanity got it wrong because of wine? This moment, when Noah gets drunk and bad things happen. So that's why Rashi says it's a remez, this, this ahala here in the Pasuk, which obviously cries out for explanation because the spelling is like wrong. So obviously we have to darshan something. So we darshan that there is a connection between this and the first time the Jewish people lost Eretz Israel and went into exile because of misuse of wine. Okay, what happened to Noah when he was in this drunken state? Yes. Yes. Correct, and then they do bad things, and they're pretty promiscuous, and, like and, and all the, sorts of things. Yeah, they do. That, like the younger sister sort of follows him. That's right. So the older sister, so is it particularly relevant to Allah? Just like that's an allusion to that narrative in general. What, uh, can you explain your question? Like it's not just Allah that does that. Yeah, it's the sister does as well. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, and I haven't got. Uh, I don't know why that, according to the way Rashi explains the Pasuk, the Pasuk is alluding to the ten tribes and not the two tribes, if that's your question. As in, as in because like, oh, is the name of the ten tribes. Yes, but, but why didn't like, it allude to the other two tribes as well, or even yeah, worse? Yeah, if it's like the general, if it's the punishment or the trajectory that both of them... Like, the only thing I can suggest, and I'm not, I'm not convinced of this, is that the northern tribes suffered first. So they're like the, the, the archetype. But, but you're right, the question, it's a strong question, is why is it related just to the northern tribes, not the southern tribes? Because the way Yechezkel paints the picture, the southern tribes were just as bad, if not, probably worse. Right. Yeah. Are you like, if they saw their, if they saw it being done first and then still follow the same thing? Yeah, you could like, see. Well, that, that's similar to what I'm saying, that because the, the ten tribes were first, they're, they're, the, they're the paradigm from which we all should learn, or not, as the case may be. Okay, now... Um, if you're familiar with Rashi, you'll know that there's going to be a, quite a major deviation from the simple Peshat to what Rashi says about what actually happened to Noah when he was drunk. So let's see Pasuk Kafbet. Vayar Chom Avi Kanan et Ervat Aviv. Chom saw, sorry, Chom, the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father, and he told it to his two brothers outside. So the simple idea is, there's only four males in the world, there's four females as well whom they're married to, but meanwhile, Noah is in Noah's tent, gets drunk, naked, uh, in a state of tremendous, um, this, uh, I don't know, how do you say bizarre in English? Disgrace, that's the one. And, Ham does something very uh, unfilially, 
very disrespectful, he goes and tells everyone, everyone being his two brothers, that their father's naked in a tent. And that's not a nice thing to do. Okay, uh, the first question that Rashi addresses is a, an obvious one. Why does it have to say that Ham is Avi Kanan? Why does it have to say he's the father of Kanan? As we will see in the next parak, they all had children. There were lots of children. I, I just said there were four people, four males in the world. That was wrong, because as we will see, there were already quite a few more born by this stage. Um, why do we need to be told that Canaan is the son of Ham? Now, you will remember that in Pasuk Yudchet, when we started the story, it said, um, And Rashi said there, we need to be told that Ham is the father of Canaan because Canaan's going to come into this story. And without too much of a spoiler alert, that Noah, when he wakes up, he curses not Ham for whatever Ham did, but he curses Canaan, which is odd. And we need to explain that. And Rashi is about to give a possible explanation. But Rashi understands that, we're, again, we're setting up what's going to come next. We need to understand where does Canaan come into the story. And that's why it says Ham avi Canaan. So in fact, I've gone a little bit ahead. What does Rashi say? Um, on the words, Vayar Ham Avi Kanan, Yeshme Rabotenu Omrim, there are son of our rabbis who say, Kanan Ra'ah, Vahigid La Aviv. Kanan saw the nakedness of his grandfather and told it to his father, Lakach Huskar Al Hadavar Vinit Kalel. And therefore he's mentioned in, in this matter and he gets cursed. So the big question is going to come when Noah wakes up and curses Canaan. Because it's Ham who's done something bad. Why does he curse Canaan? So we'll see another answer later on. But the answer that Rashi gives here is, well, maybe, maybe Canaan's role in the matter was he was the one who disrespectfully told his own father, Ham, about Noah's state. And then Ham did whatever he did. But Canaan was the instigator. And that is implied here in Ham Avi Canaan. The next thing to say is, on Rashi's comment on the next verse, Vayar et ervat aviv. He saw the nakedness of his father. Here's the point that I was leading up to. Yesh omrim serso. There are those who say he castrated him. Yesh omrim o. And there are those who say he had sexual relations with him. So if you're not familiar with that, Rashi, it's a bit of a, bit, bit of a shock, that one because we grew up in primary school thinking that Ham did a bad thing. He pointed out that his father was naked. Rashi says he did a thing which was much, much, much worse. You can't really get more disrespectful than what we've just read. Now, why does Rashi bring this Midrash as Gemara to say that Ham did one of those two things? By the way, later on, he's going to narrow it down to one of them. But right now, he says it's two possibilities. Castrated him or raped him. Um, and... The answer is um, what is going to come in Pasuk Kaf Dalet. What did this just jump to Pasuk Kaf Dalet? Noach woke up from his wine. The Yeda et Asher Asa Lo Beno Hakatan. And he knew what his young son, Aicham, we'll talk about why it's Beno Hakatan later, what he knew had done to him. So if you take the literal shot, that Ham saw him naked, you have two strong questions. Number one, seeing something is not doing something. It's not what he's done to him. All right, he embarrassed him, if you take the simple shot. He told his brothers that, uh, that, that Noah was naked. 
But how, that, that's not the same as doing something. Doing something is an act. It's an actual action, not just seeing him naked. Number two, if it had just been seeing him naked, how would Noah be aware of that? Okay, maybe the other people, if we take the simple shot, Ham sees him naked, Ham tells the brothers, the brothers maybe told Noah, you know what? Ham, your son was very rude about you, and he told us all about your nakedness. Well, that's possible, but there's not really the sense of Noah knew, Noah knew what Ham had done to him. So if Ham had done either of those two terrible things, that is something that Noah would realize when he woke up from his drunkenness. It's also the case that when Dina is raped by Shechem, the start of that peruk is... Uh, yeah, here we are, peruk Lama Dalad. Shechem, the son of Hamor, saw her. And then it says explicitly, He took her, he lay with her, and he abused her. But the starting point is Vayar. So maybe it's a sort of Gezer Shava. I have to say a sort of Gezer Shava. If the Gemara doesn't list it as a Gezer Shava, then, then it isn't one. But maybe it's a sort of Gezer Shava from there where it says Vayar Ota Shechem and here it says Vayar Cham. But perhaps a better point is we might be familiar with the lists of forbidden relationships that are recorded not once but twice once in Achare Mot and once in Kadoshim uh, and then mentioned from time to time elsewhere as well. Um, the list of forbidden relationships and every time it says a person can't have relations with their mother, their aunt, their sister etc. What's the expression used in Hebrew? Lagalot ervata, to reveal their nakedness. So revealing a nakedness is used as a um, metaphor, and it's used repeatedly as a metaphor, and it's very obvious that's what it means. It means sexual relations. So here, vayar et ervat aviv is not quite the same thing, but it's pretty much, it's pretty close. And it's pretty close to suggesting that it's not to be said literally as he saw the nakedness, but actually he had relations with him or castrated him. Okay. But enough. how does how does Noah Yada that it was Ham? Ah, that's true. I, I I'm not sure. I haven't got an answer to that. Mm. Um, he uh, it's a good question. Um, what I wanted to say was he he knows that something's been done to him. Yeah. Which and if it was just seeing him, he wouldn't have known that. But you're right. I haven't got an answer for how he knows it was Ham. Um, okay. Um, unless you say that even when he was drunk, he had a sense of what was going on, but he only sort of put it together when he'd woken up from his drunkenness, which is possible. Yeah. Um, okay, what happened next? Pasuk Kaf Gimel. Vayekach Shem Vayefet et hasimla. Shem and Yefet took the garment. Vayasimu al Shechem Shenechem. And they put it on the shoulders of both of them. Vayalchu achoranit. And they went backwards. Vayachasu et ervat avihem. And they covered the nakedness of their father, Ufnehem Achoranit, and their faces were backwards, the Ervat Avihem Lo Ra'u, and the nakedness of their father they did not see. So in contrast to Ham, who abuses Noah in his naked state, Shem and Yefet cover him up, and they do it, and the Torah really lays it on how respectful they were 
when they covered him up. They didn't look at him. In fact, Achoronit is written here not once, but twice. Rashi will, will give us a, a reason why. And then Both times, it's going out of its way to say they didn't look at the nakedness of their father. Now, let's look at Rashi. It doesn't say Vayikhu, it says Vayikach. Why should it say Vayikhu? Because it's two people. Now, it is actually common in the Torah that when there are two people doing the same act, but one of them is senior and one of them is junior, to use a singular verb. For instance, uh, the parashiot we've just been reading, quite a few times it says Vayavo Moshe Aharon. Vayavo, singular, Moshe Aharon, Plural. Why? Because Moshe is the number one and Aaron's coming along for the ride. Aaron's the plus one. So because Moshe is the keeper, this is the point that Marvin makes and he says it's a rule of Hebrew. Um, but we can, we can learn from it. So we can learn that when we do see a singular verb, it means somebody's the prime mover and somebody's the secondary mover. And we're going to get to the point that Shem is praised more than Yafet for this. So it fits that Rashi wants to identify that of Shem and Yafet, one of them is the leader and one of them is secondary. And I'm sure it's not a coincidence that we come from Shem. So uh, the way we read the Torah, or rather the way the Torah is handed down to us, is to point out that we have great Yichus, that we come from Shem, and he's the really good guy in this episode. Okay, so Rashi says, Enketiv kan limed al shame. This teaches about shame. Shinit ameitz mitzvah yoter miyafet. That he was more enthusiastic, he was more strong in the mitzvah, more than yafet. Therefore, lekach zachu banav letalit shel sitzit. So Shem and Yefet both get a reward, or rather the descendants of Shem and Yefet both get a reward from doing this good deed. And the reward that Shem gets is the mitzvah of sitzit, or to wear a talit with sitzit. The sitzit on their own don't cover you up very much, but the talit, which comes with the sitzit, which goes to Shem's descendants. Now, you might point out, not many of Shem's descendants, and only ten generations later, but some of Shem's descendants, i.e. us, get a mitzvah, which is, uh, for those who are obliged in the mitzvah, it is to wear a talit with sitzit. For Yefet, zachu banav lekavura, and Yefet, his children, Merited burial. What does it mean, they merited burial? Um, does everyone say they merited burial, full stop? I think there is a version that says they merited burial in Eretz Yisrael. Whom is it referring to? Shnei Emar, as it says, a pasuk in Yechezkel, Etain Lagog Makom Shom Kever. Hashem says, I will give to Gog a place there as a burial. Who is Gog? Oh, we don't... What? Not necessarily. He is um, either literally or metaphorically or some sort of illusion going to be in the great battle in the future of Gog and Magog, Gog and Magog, which is read about uh, on Cholamoed Sukkot. Very good. Um, see a beautiful, beautiful piece by Rav Hirsch. You have to look for it in Parshat um, Balotcha where Rav Hirsch says that the ultimate battle is between uh, Gog, the people of the roof, 
and us, the people of the Sukkah. And that's why we read it on Sukkot. It's an amazing vault. Uh, I just have to mention it. It doesn't fit with the Rashi here. I just have to mention it. It's just so brilliant. Anyway, because the people of Gag, the people of the roof, they say, they, they, they build their own houses and they define their own protection. We sit in the Sukkah and who protects us? Hashem. So they rely on themselves, we rely on Hashem. That's why we read the story of Gog and Magog on Sukkot. Anyway, so who was Gog? Now, as I say, uh, I've, uh, there are lots of different interpretations, and some say it's, it's, only a, it's, it's only a metaphor anyway, but Rashi is of the opinion that it's not, and Gog is one of the descendants of Yefet, as we will see later. Gog is one of the descendants of Yefet. And therefore, when after this great battle, Gog's not a good guy. We don't really know who he is, but he's not a good guy. But after the great battle, Hashem has Rachmanus and says his soldiers can be buried in Eretz Israel. And the Pasuk says, I think it takes seven months to bury them all because there were so many to bury after this war. So that is the blessing give, or the reward given to Yefet. Now, uh, interesting point. So Shem gets a talit with tzitzit and Yefet gets a burial for his descendants. Why is that a good reward for what they've done? It's a very good reward from what they've done. It's a very good middle Canadian middle because they have covered up the nakedness of their father. So they both get coverings. Now, Rashi doesn't say this explicitly, but let's go a little bit further. This is perhaps a sort of Hanukkah Drasha because Yafet is the ancestor of Yavan and uh, you can go back to the division between Jews and Greeks back to this moment. So if Shem is the leader in this action. Maybe you can close the door so we can stop it shaking. If Shem is the leader in this action, and the Yekach is in the singular, why is, doing, why is Yefet involved? So someone to say, and Rashi doesn't say this explicitly, but perhaps you could like learn from it. Someone to say there's a difference in the motivation of Shem and Yefet. Shem wants to do the, 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 the mitzvah, if you like, of kibbud av, of respecting the honor of his father, etc., etc., Yefet's motivation is different. Yefet, like his descendants, the Greeks, they just want to do what like, looks right, what is socially acceptable. Not from a spiritual motivation, but a sort of um, Hellenistic idea that... that um, sorry, I'm, not trying, uh, I'm missing the word. That they want to... Uh, it, it, it's impolite for their father to be naked, so they want to redress that but they're not driven by a spiritual motivation, they're driven by what looks good. And that, by the way, is perhaps the difference between the Torah and Hellenism, that's our Hanukkah vault. So what happens in terms of their rewards? What is the reward given to Shem? A mitzvah, a talit with tzitzit, a way of connecting to a Kaddish Baruch What is the reward given to Yefet? Burial, entirely physical. It's also about respecting the body, it's about covering the body, but there's no mitzvah in lying in the grave. There's a decency, there's a politeness, there's an externality, a physicality, but there's no spirituality. That's the difference between the two rewards. Okay. Um, uh, really quickly, is there any um, reason why Magog is one of the sons as well? Uh, as well as Gog? Yeah. Yes. Um, no, I don't know. Um, yeah, so you have to, unfortunately, it's very, very unclear. Uh, I keep saying we don't really understand what it's going to be. 
Um, there's Gog and there's Magog. It's not clear if Magog's a different person or just a different nation. Gog is the main character. Um, but you're right, as you, you've read ahead. When we get to the descendants of Yerfet, there's Gog and there's Magog. Now, that actually may not be the same ones who appear in the future, because it's going to be in the future, which is a long time after the people listed here. Unless the Gog is the nation from which the ultimate Mr. Gog is going to come. I, 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 I know I'm being very vague, because the whole thing's very vague. So I don't really... Yes, I'm sure there is some significance, but we don't really know who Magog... We, we, we're not sure who Gog is in the final battle. We've even got less understanding who Magog is. Right. Now, we've talked about what happens to Yefet and what happens to Shem. What about Ham? Let's not forget him. So Rashi continues. The Ham, Shabiza et Aviv, and Ham, who disgraced his father, Neemar Bazaro, it said about his descendants. So you see there's a pattern here. Shem is great. His descendants get a nice mitzvah. Yafet is also good. His descendants get a reward. Ham is bad. His descendants get a punishment. And it's all Midah Kenegi Midah. Because it's said about the descendants of Ham um, in the Pasuk in Yeshaya, Cain yinhag melech ashur et shavi mitzrayim ve'et galut kush. This is how the king of Ashur behaved with the captives from Mitzrayim and the exiles from Cush. Mitzrayim and Cush are both descendants of Ham. And what happened to them? Na'arim uzukenim, the young and the old who were captured by the king of Ashur, arum, they were naked, v'yachef, and barefoot, v'chashufai, and bare shaped, which means their backsides. So it describes the descendants of Ham in this particular case as being disgraced again through nakedness. So it's very, very clear there's Midah Kenegid Midah. Hashem rules the world and Hashem pays back according to the original deed. So um, Rashi wants to say that uh, nothing goes unrewarded. It's interesting. I'm just, the reason I, I, I struggle here is because Rashi doesn't seem to be explaining Pshat here but he's giving us a, an essential part of the story, which isn't there in the book, but he's telling us what then happens to their descendants, which sheds light on the motivations of Shem, Ham, and Yafet at the original time. Now, Rashi deals with the problem that I mentioned earlier. I said it because Rashi says it, and it, it goes like this. Ufenehem achoranit, lama ne'emar pam shniya. Why does it say achoranit a second time? Because as we saw, it says, And then it says, So why does it say their faces were backward? First it says they went backwards, and then it says their faces were backward. Well, if they went backward, then obviously their faces were backward. So why does it need to say it twice? This teaches, When they drew near to him. So, Noach's in his tent. They enter the tent backwards, carrying this garment on their shoulders. But when they get near to him, they've got a problem. Because if they keep going backwards, they're going to bump into him or they're not going to be able to see what, they, what they're going to do. So, when they drew near to him, and they needed to turn around in order to cover him, at that point, they turned their bodies so they're now facing forwards, but they turned their heads so they still couldn't see their father in that state. 
So Rashi says it's basically a two-stage process, which if you think about it, is obvious, because if you walk backwards, you're not going to have the precision to actually put the robe over the person. You have to at least be facing forwards at that point. So even when they turned to perform the actual maneuver, their faces were still facing the other way. Look how much care they took to do it in the right way and not to disgrace their father in any way. By the way, it just occurs to me, he's still asleep. I know he's asleep because the next word is by your kates. Then he woke up. But even when he's asleep, so even though he doesn't know what's going on, they're still making this tremendous effort to act in a way which is exceptionally respectful to their father. So, now we can move on. Pasuk Kaftalo. Vayiket Nach, as we've seen already. Nach woke up, mi no from his wine. Vayeda et asher asa lo beno hakatan. And he knew what his youngest son, or small son, had done to him. Why does it say beno hakatan? Who was his youngest son? Which one? Who says? It doesn't say. It doesn't say. Um, the Mizrahi says that Chom was his youngest son. Um, based on Perik Yud Pasuk Kaf Aleph. If you look at Perik Yud Pasuk Kaf Aleph, I see. Um, no, well, that doesn't tell you exactly, but that's where the Mizrahi says it. In Perik Yud, we go through the descendants of the three sons. In which order? First is Ham. And then is, um, Yef, sorry, first is Yefet, then is Ham, then is Shem. Sorry, I don't, I, no, the, I, I, I haven't actually checked the Mizrahi, but I know that Mizrahi says that Ham is his youngest son. And therefore, that raises the question, why does it have to say that Ham here is a reference? Why does it have to say, Beno HaKatan? Why can't I just say Ham? We know that Ham is the youngest son. Alternatively, Ham is not the youngest son. In which case, the question is even stronger. Why does it call him the youngest son here? So either he is the youngest son, in which case, why do we need to repeat that fact here? Or he isn't the youngest son. Why do we need to say it at all? Why do we call him Beno HaKatan? So look at Rashi. Rashi says on the words Beno HaKatan, HaPasul, the HaBazui, the one who is unfit and the one who is disgraceful. Kamo as we see in the Pasuk in Yemiahu, referring to the kingdom of Edom, Hinei katon natatiha, behold, says Hashem, I have placed you as katon, bagoyim, amongst the nations, bazui ba'adam, the most disgraced of persons. So there explicitly, katan means disgraced, means lowly, means not good. Does, what doesn't it mean? It doesn't mean small, and it doesn't mean young. So Rashi's telling you, it doesn't mean the youngest son. Because, for reasons we've explained, it doesn't make sense for it to say the youngest son, either because that would be incorrect or because it would be superfluous. So Rashi says, don't read it as youngest son. Read it as disgraceful son. Most disgraced son. Hapasul v'habazui. That's what it means. Okay. Pasuk kafhei. So Noach wakes up. He knows what Ham did to him. So you ask the question, how does he know it was Ham? I don't know. Good question. But look what he says. Vayomer, and he said, Arur kanan, eved avadim Cursed be kanan, a servant of servants he will be to his brothers. 
What's the obvious question? Although we've pretty much answered it in advance. What's the obvious question? Why is Canaan cursed? Why is Canaan cursed and not Ham? So one point to make is, if you look at Perak Tet Pasuk Aleph, one explanation, one thought about why Rashi says that, uh, or rather why the Pasuk says that um, Noah cursed Canaan is because of this. What do we see in Perak Tet Pasuk Aleph? Vayevorech Elohim et Noach ve'et banav. Hashem blessed Noach and his sons. So if Hashem had already blessed Ham, then what can't Noach do? Curse. Can't curse Noach. He can't curse somebody whom Hashem has blessed. That's one approach. But that's not quite what Rashi says. Or, or maybe it is, but Rashi doesn't spell it out. Look at Rashi. Aror Kanan. Curse it be Kanan. Ata guramtam li, guramta li, shalo olid ben revi'i, L'shamsheni. You, Ham, caused me that I will not be able to father a fourth son who will serve me. Therefore, Aror Bincha Harvi'i, your fourth son, and we'll see in the next paragraph that Canaan was Ham's fourth son, your fourth son, Lehiyot Meshamesh et Zaram, Shal Elu, will be the servant of the descendants of these, i.e. of Shem and Yefet, Hagadolim, the, the big ones, Shahutal Alehem Torah Avodoti, that has been placed on them the, the burden of serving me, Me'ata, from now, which means from now it will not be on them, it will be on Canaan. Okay, I'll just say it outside and I'll say it again inside. Um, it's a little bit convoluted, but what Naach is saying, first of all, Naach is saying, I wanted a fourth son. Um, remember, he, he was very old, but he was quite old when he had his first three children. So relatively, he's still in the same phase of his life. And while he was in the Teva, there was no relations. Rashi stressed that over and over again. So he comes out the Teva, and Rashi says here, he says, I wanted a fourth son. Now, why did I want a fourth son? This one's a little bit hard. Why did I want a fourth son? To serve me, to look after me in my old age. Okay? That was one of the economic functions of children in times gone by. I want someone to look after me in my old age. Now, I haven't got one. So, what, who's going to now serve me? Well, I'm going to... Not, I'm not going to make Canaan my servant. I don't really want that. But I'm going to say that Canaan will have to serve Shem and Yefet to take the, from them, to help them, because they're now going to have to serve me because I haven't got my fourth son. So Shem and Yefet are going to have to serve me. So in response, Canaan, who is your fourth son, is going to have to serve Shem and Yefet. So that's what he says. I'll say it again. From the beginning. So you caused me, but I don't have a fourth son to serve me. So your fourth son is cursed. He's going to serve the descendants of these big ones, Shem and Yafet, Shahut alehem, because what has been placed on them is Torah avodati me'ata, the burden of serving me from now on. Now, we need to carry on. The next part of Rashi explains the first, well, it's a different part, but it's necessary to understand what's going on. Umar ra'ah ham serso. What did ham see that he castrated his father? So he stopped his father having any more children. Amar lahem la'achiv. 
he said to them, to his brothers, Adam Harishan, Shnei Banim Hayulo. Adam Harishan had two sons. The Harag And they killed each other. It's not quite true. One killed the other. Bishvil Yerushat HaOlam. For the sake of inheriting the world. The Avinu and our father, Yeshlo Shalosha Banim. He has already three sons. And yet he wants a fourth. Okay. Yes, exactly. Ham doesn't want the world divided into four. He it will cope with it divided into three, but he doesn't want to divide into four. Now, there's a lot of things to say in the last five minutes. The first thing is, in terms of the style of Rashi, um, as you will remember, Rashi offered two explanations for what Ham did back in Kafbet either castrated him or raped him. And here, he's narrowed it down to one. And Rashi does this occasionally. And it's not such a big deal. Over there in Kafbet, it said, What exactly did that mean? There were two possible explanations. Rashi gave them both, because that explained Posit Kafbet. Now, when it comes to Posit Kafhei, given the story we've told about... Uh, Canaan is cursed because he's the fourth son of Ham, and Ham has prevented a fourth son to Noah. It turns out that there's only one of those two explanations now makes sense in explaining this pasuk. It reminds me that we made a fuss, because everyone makes a fuss, about at the beginning of Pasha's Noah, um, Noah Rashi gave two explanations for Tsohar. Was it a window or was it a light? And then later on, at the end of the flood, Rashi Noah opens the Tsohar, and Rashi says, i.e., the window. And the question is asked, uh, why does Rashi change from two possibilities to one possibility? And perhaps the answer is, you know what, sometimes he does. He explains the Pasuk in context, and sometimes the earlier Pasuk stands for two explanations, but the later Pasuk only stands for one. That's the first thing to say. Um, the next thing I wanted to say is something I only noticed today. It's a little Kiddush of mine, so it may be baseless, but there's an interesting thing. So Rashi just told the story about how Cain and Hevel argued over the Yerusha, over inheriting the world. And that's why Cain killed Hevel. The funny thing is, when Rashi told the story, when the Torah told the story of Cain and Hevel, Rashi didn't say that. If you look at Perak Dalar Pasachet, Perak Dalar Pasachet. So this is the rather terse description of the argument between Cain and Hevel. Kain said to Hevel his brother. And it doesn't tell us what he said. Rashi says, he, it doesn't tell us what he said because it was just an excuse. But if you look at Rashi there on Chet, he entered into an argument with him to find an excuse to find an excuse to kill him. And then Rashi said, There are Midrashim. But what I have said is the simple way to explain the Pasuk. So my question is, why does Rashi need to tell us there are Midrashim? You know, there are always Midrashim. There's, there's dozens of Midrashim on every Pasuk of the Torah. If you, look, if you learn the Torah Shalema by Rav Menachem Kasha, which is an amazing work, he brings every Midrash he can find on every Pasuk. So Rashi doesn't need to say, Yesh Midrashim. That's no Chirush. And if he's going to say Yesh Midrashim, why doesn't he tell us what the Midrashim say? I mean, why does he just like, give us a little tease? Why doesn't he tell us? So there are a few places when he says Yesh Midrashim. 
which we understand means I don't need to tell you what they are, but it will be good for you to go and look it up. In those cases, when Rashi makes that point, there's a few other places where he does that. So maybe, and this is just my thought, and it might be baseless, completely worthless, maybe is a, a pre, Rashi setting us up for here. When it described the battle, the argument between Ken and Hevel, we didn't need to know exactly what they were arguing about. But Rashi says, have a look at the Midrash, because it will be useful for you. Why would it be useful for you? Because there you'll find they were arguing about, amongst other things, the Yerusha. And then you can understand Rashi's comment here. Rashi's comment here only makes sense if you've bothered to look up the Midrash there. Rashi's comment here is, Ham says, Kain and Hevel, they came to blows. One killed the other because even when there were two, that was too many to inherit the whole earth. So my father wants to have a fourth. How much more so should, we, should I stop that from happening? So that's how Rashi explains why Ham did this terrible thing to Noach. And that led to Noah not having a fourth son, and that's why Noah curses the fourth son of Ham. We will stop there, and next week, in Yitzhak Shem, we will see how Noah gives a bracha to Shem and to Yefet, and that bracha is very important for us today.